This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 6th of March 2018. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Jon, and here is my co-host, Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello, Jon. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's another podcast. It is. And Jon, we have a winner. A winner. Did, did something end? Something did end. Indeed, our competition for a ticket to the DataWorks Summit in Berlin, we've been running a raffle, has completed, and we have selected a winner. Congratulations to our as-yet-unnamed winner. <laughs> um, we've uh, noted, notified you via a Twitter direct message and via LinkedIn, and if you could uh, respond to confirm you wish to receive the ticket, it'll be all yours. Yes, exactly. So we did also select a couple of runners-up, so if the winner isn't able to attend or is already attending possible then we will be passing on the prize to the runner up we will be announcing the name on twitter when the person has accepted the prize and actually agrees to have publicity around that indeed so uh, congratulations to our as yet unnamed winner and uh, thank us. you again to Horton Works for sponsoring the ticket definitely and do we maybe want to do a little future announcement about the Hortonworks Summit San Jose? We can do. If you missed out on your chance to attend the uh, DataWorks Summit here in Europe this year in Berlin, uh, but you would like to attend the DataWorks Summit in San Jose, keep your ears open to the podcast. You we will have, have something. an upcoming raffle for that event as well. So. Yes. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. We'll be announcing the start of that raffle on Twitter and in the podcast itself, of course. Yep. And with that, it's a news episode. So yes. let's so, do some news. It's always good news for our listeners, a news episode, because that means we don't go out on for hours and hours. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you start. Indeed, I do. Indeed, I do. So... Um, we're a little bit late with this one, um, but you know it's it's taken twenty years, so I think you know, a month here or there isn't uh, isn't too much trouble. But uh, it's a set of articles, or really a set of um, thoughts that are really quite close to my heart, and that is the news around uh, open source uh, being twenty, well, twenty and a bit now. Um, there's there've been a number of articles around this. Um, there's a few links in the show notes. I picked um, two that really show, I guess, two ends of the spectrum. One that's uh, ZNet or ZDNet, depending on your choice of pronunciation, <laughs> um, article around open source being 20. Um, and it, it's quite nice because it has a number of uh, quotes from uh, you know luminaries like um, Eric Raymond, uh, Richard Stallman, um, uh, Bruce Perrins, um, you've got people from um, the Linux Foundation like Jim Zemlin um, and even Jim Whitehurst uh, from Red Hat. Um, so there's there's sort of some nice quotes about um, you know the history of, of open source and of course Eric Stolman you know <laughs> um, being very militant about the fact that uh, you know there's a difference between open source and uh, free software the free software foundation of course <laughs> and he and you know those those uh, conversations will continue going on i'm sure for a very long time but conversation is good it is it is and i think it's 
it's really, I mean, I've said this a number of times on the podcast. I think it's amazing to look back and just see, um, you know, where the whole open source movement has, has come from and, you know, what it is now. And I, I've been not quite involved in it for the full 20 years, but it's, it's getting pretty close. Um, and, you know, thinking back to where it was when I very first started, which was, uh, very early sort of uh, Linux times and uh, you know nobody it was no such thing as commercial support um, you know you had to build things yourself there was very little in the way of pre-built um, sort of components or anything like that you just had to download the code and build it and away you went you know eventually things like Slackware came along that made that sort of process a little bit easier and so on and so forth and it all all built from there and you know today Open source is powering the majority of the internet. Um, it is something that is endemic to the majority of um, enterprise organisations. Um, I just think it, it's it's a real success story, and I certainly look forward to the next twenty years. Yeah, it really went a long way. I've seen the article that they're using the Cathedral and Bazaar article as the founding mm-hmm. of the whole thing, which is a bit debatable, I guess. Uh, <laughs> one might say that the article is a result of open source being in existence already. But I do yep. remember that in those days, I kind of mistrusted the whole thing because it felt like shady. Because if I remember correctly, <laughs> that was in the area the time when I was um, allegedly uh, taking floppy disks from magazines and copying them illegally to have them play on my <laughs> my hacked together <laughs> PC and stuff like that. And then this this whole open source thing with free Linux came on board. Is it is this is this legit? Is this good? Is this? I still remember having a bit of. I don't know. Am I doing this right or wrong? I don't really care, but still, I want to know. <laughs> yep. But uh, well, yeah. it was it was a real game changer. It's a real yes. it was a totally um, new paradigm. Nice yeah, word. total shift in direction, and uh, yeah, and it was inevitable. Long as may well. it continue because yeah. it's something. It, it came out of necessity because a lot of people want to do stuff that wasn't possible with uh, with commercial software. And this just came and people built on it. And whether you liked it or not, you, well, if you liked it, you used it. If you didn't like it, you, you, you adapted it. You made it better. Yeah. So, and it just uh, grew and grew and grew. It's, it's one of the, I don't know, I'm a sci-fi geek. And uh, I, I, I kind of want to think this is the start of the foundation of the, of the federation starting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the no money economy and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who knows? We may, we may, we may still see that in our lifetime. Oh, well, we'll see. Anyway, so, happy birthday, yeah, open source. Indeed, happy 20, 20, 20th birthday, open source. Um, so the second article is still in this similar sort of vein. Um, there have been a number of um, articles around, you know, who, who contributes to open source, what are the sort of numbers behind organizations um, contributing to open source. And it's... There there was a study back in October um, 2017 that sort of came up with some numbers, but um, there were some really sort of odd, um, I guess some odd sort of skew in the way that the numbers were were sort of created. And some people had mentioned that, you know, the the data didn't quite look right. and you know, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, the, the 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 normal rules apply here. Um, it, it's not exactly a a scientific 
uh, analysis because it's all based on a variety of uh, fields in GitHub. Um, you know, GitHub isn't the only place that uh, people are doing open source, although you could argue it is probably the dominant Ooh. one now. Oh, yeah, it should um, be indicative, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It should be indicative of the percentage of open mm-hmm. source that's going on, maybe. Um, but anyway, the, so now this uh, this latest um, sort of review of that is done actually using the um, uh, employee uh, sort of, uh, not the employee field, company. the company field in their profile and uh, looking at the sort of commits based on that. And, you know, going back to the, the previous article we are talking about, you know, with the 20 years of open source, um, I think, I don't know who, no one I don't think would have predicted that the number one company contributing to open source uh, would be Microsoft. Certainly 20 years ago, not, not a chance. It would, you know, Microsoft <laughs> have had an interesting uh, relationship with open source in the past. Yeah, you can just say it. I mean, Bill Gates said it was a cancer and an, an, yeah. an American. No, I'm not sure what yeah. that is supposed to mean these days, but yeah. So, and, and now they are, you know, they have over four and a half thousand employees contributing to uh, open, open source projects on GitHub. Um, and it's the, the sort of the top, I don't know, five or so are, are less interesting to me. They're sort of Microsoft, Google, Red Hat, IBM, Intel, all the sorts of names that you'd expect to be there. But I think as you as you sort of you know go down the list, there are some interesting people there. SAP is in at, at number seven. Um, you know, uh, you've got Oracle in at number seventeen. Yeah, but that's um, mostly because of MySQL, and since that's been, that's been eclipsed in uh, MariaDB. Hmm. True, but I'm still surprised it's quite so high. Well, um, they've got MySQL, they've got uh, the Solaris things, even though it's dead now. So they have some stuff they bought, right? They bought, right? Yeah, yeah. But I'm still surprised it's quite that high. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, it's it's interesting. Um, there's there's a, a number of organizations in the list that I think are are surprising in their that their position is so high but you know the the real the real heavyweights the real dominance are, are sort of exactly the the organizations that you'd expect and uh, uh, it's nice to see red hat in there at number three yeah anyway. that's a new one too because in the original uh, survey they did red hat was really low so mm. not entirely sure what the difference between methodology was but uh, yeah as you said even this one isn't that uh, I would it's say trustworthy, yeah, not scientific. Because <laughs> uh, also there were a couple of articles around this uh, on the the infospheres, and mm-hmm. one thing I read was that these are absolute numbers. And if you look at a Microsoft compared to Red Hat, I think Microsoft is like a hundred times as many people working for uh, for the company. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody was thinking of doing something similar, but then as a percentual, how many of the company are actually mm-hmm. involved? That would be an interesting statistic. Just to see, because, yeah. I mean, if you have 100,000 people and 1,000 of them are doing uh, open source, Red Hat, as far as I'm told, 90% of the employees are doing open source. Mm, it's probably not 90% anymore. Well, but. I don't know, give it, uh, <laughs> give and take. But still, it's going to be a difference there, right? It, yeah, yeah. It's going to be. It's going to be a. Very, it's going to be a significant percentage of the organization compared to a, a tiny percentage of a, a large. 
That's also the thing that surprised me most. What surprised me that I noticed most was uh, Amazon being so low. And when I say so low, well, they're in sixth place, so that's not low, low. But if you look at the absolute numbers, if you compare Microsoft four thousand, Google two thousand, Red Hat two thousand, IBM eighteen hundred, so close to two thousand as well, Amazon eight hundred. That's half of it, and they're that's definitely the cloud for the, the AWS. They're really living from open source. And I yeah. know they've been doing a lot of speeches and talks and events as well. So I know they work a lot on open source too. So uh, it seems low. Maybe. Maybe. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know Amazon. I've never been there, never worked there. So I have no idea what internal things work, but it seems low. I mean, it, it's, it is kind of curious that Amazon is coming in at uh, 881 and SAP is in at, is in at 747. Yeah, exactly. And I can see SAP yeah, doing stuff that can help themselves because basically they're a company selling software that also collaborates with open source connectors and stuff like that. So they have some, yeah, some work in there. Seems logical, but mm-hmm. they have almost more than Amazon does. That that's weird. Also, yeah. Facebook only six hundred nineteen. That being said, I have no idea how many people actually work for Facebook in the technical uh, part of the company. Yeah. I mean, but then you know, if you if you go go on further down the list, you've got you know LinkedIn. That's Microsoft, by the way. Well, true, but LinkedIn is as is down at three four three or down at number twenty two with three hundred and forty three people. So. Yeah, but I know that a lot of people from LinkedIn change their company field to Microsoft, and the thing happens. Uh, could well be. I know. Well, there you go. <laughs> I've anyway. got inside information there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there you go. Lies, also, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, one thing, I want to <laughs> want to call it one more. Go on then, Apple. Position 25, 292. Yeah. They're using Linux. Well, okay, BSD, but still, they're close to the, the ecosystem, right? They could do they could they could do better. Let's say let's keep it at that. <laughs> yeah. Nice hardware. Not sure about the software. I'm sure it'd be better if it was open source. Anyway. Yeah. Look down <laughs> what you have in front of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As I say, hardware's nice. Um, software, eh, not so much. Anyway, anyway, moving on. Yeah, come come talk to us about AI. Yeah, I've got a couple of articles for today, which are both within the same vein of uh, people getting introductions to machine learning and AI. And my first article is from McKinsey, the uh, big uh, yeah C level organization I would call them. And I've got a, a little site up that's called an executive's guide to AI. And it's not an in-depth article or anything like that, but it does have some nice visualizations on the different parts of it. And if you go to the link, which is going to be in the show notes, of course, their first part is on the artificial intelligence. And the first link is your little definition, which is fine. You can read that. But the second link is your timeline, which I found kind of interesting because it really kind of tries to show why AI is getting important today. And they're starting in 1991 with what they call the explosion of data. And then you've got uh, three things coming together in, uh, what was it again, 2009? Yep, you have the algorithm, Mm -hmm. the advancements, which means the mathematics uh, coming on. You have the compute power that becomes available. And I would also say cheap enough to be used because compute power is always available if you had money enough. And explosion of data and all this that came came together in two thousand nine, and from that point onwards, uh, the the yeah the road just goes on with uh, IBM Watson leading Jeopardy, deep learnings, classifiers, uh, improvements on speech, and uh, things and stuff. So it's a nice graphic, a nice visual. So if you, for somebody who's 
starting into the space and wants to have a little bit of a history. So if you have discussions with your peers, you have a little bit idea of what you're talking about. It's a, it's a nice graphic. Now, a lot of these uh, things aren't, there's a lot of pluses on these things, which all have a little uh, tag to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can get more details. So I, I like the I like the visual. It's a nice one. It's a really. It's actually. I've been clicking through this mm-hmm. um, as you've been. Have you been talking? And it's. It is a really well done yeah. um, visualization in terms of the the usability for and the the Keep fact that yeah. things yeah the things don't take too long to load, but it still looks very polished. And it actually conveys a decent amount of information. Yep. Yeah. And, I, I mean, like a lot. in our uh, business, in our work, daily works, we have to talk to C-level people that aren't supposed to be technical to the point that they really grok the whole machine learning algorithmic thing behind it. But I think this is a nice visual that really gives enough background information. So the first part's on the on AI, then have a second part on machine learning. And again, the first link is just a description. Second link, major types. It's actually a pretty nice um, segmentation of the different machine learning algorithms. I know last uh, uh, news episode, I had uh, an article that had a list and some possible choices on how to select which algorithm to use. But that was clearly something that was directed to the more technical user. Mm-hmm. developer, mathematician, whatever. And here they have a nice graphic with supervised and unsupervised and reinforcement learning. What is it? When do you use it? How it works? And so on and so on, even business cases and stuff. And again, it's not going to be super complete because it's uh, they're more catchy visuals and in-depth and uh, analysis of the whole thing. But uh, looking through it, I think it's quite nice. And uh, I, I'm not going to say it out loud, but I think I'm going to steal some stuff from here to use in my own, <laughs> in my own presentations because it's uh, very well thought out, very well laid out. And uh, mm. it's nice. Uh, bottom part, again, deep learning, the, the real AI stuff, same thing, difference between CNNs, RNNs, and uh, what the, those, those I think they went too far. I yeah. don't see an executive really getting this. getting down to that sort of level, and that also is a bit indicative of the whole space. Because I've talked, I said this before, that the whole machine learning thing has become mature enough where you can just use it. You don't have to understand it completely anymore. You can just take components and use it, just like I drive my car. I have no idea how a combustion engine works. I have a vague idea something explodes in there and gets contained and movement occurs. But Suck, squeeze, bang, blow. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's British motors. Uh, on the continent, though. No, so, <laughs> um, so, and machine learning is in the same shape at the moment where you can just use it without actually having to know how the internals work. AI and deep learning isn't there yet. If you don't really understand how a CNN differs from an RNN, you're going to get in trouble. And when you start building stuff for these things, you will be making your hands dirty with code. There's no escaping it at this point. It's getting there. It's not there yet. And that's also what you can see in these representations and these visuals where the machine learning is very nicely, elegantly explained, let's say. The deep yeah. learning things, eh, still It's a little bit rougher to, on the edges. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But again, it's a, I think it's a nice um, resource if anybody is wanting to do something with AI, machine learning and stuff and needs some easy to understand way of explaining to the, the bosses why you should do it and how hard it is or isn't. I think uh, people can actually use this uh, quite productively. So uh, McKinsey yeah. and company, and I'm just going to mention the authors here. That's Michael Chui, Vishnu 
Kamalnath, sorry for that. And there's one more guy, Brian McCarthy, who made this all. Nice. So nice visual. Thank yeah, you for that. Liked it a lot. Okay. Back to so you. moving from executive guides to AI um, to houses that spy on you. That's a difference. <laughs> well, a little bit. <laughs> so the, this is this is just an article that I. Uh, actually read in a doctor's waiting room as it happens um, and it's it's kind of interesting because it starts off as it's it's basically the it, it starts off as um, an investigation into a series of IOT devices you know someone actually basically takes their one bed apartment and turns it into a smart home in, in inverted commas so they you know c- connect as many or buy as many different appliances and things that are uh, that they can connect to the internet that are supposedly smart devices so they've got an Amazon Echo they've got you know a variety of lights a coffee machine a baby monitor kids toys a vacuum uh, a TV, toothbrush, photo frame, um, even a bed, and they <laughs> they go through this whole process of um, seeing what it's like actually living with them. Now, as I say, the article starts off really with more of an angle on the the privacy. So they they actually um, create a separate uh, wireless router. Um, add a Raspberry Pi device, and they use that to actually um, record all the traffic that's going through. They're not looking at the cybersecurity aspects of it and seeing if they can you know, break encryption. They're just seeing what traffic is passed in the clear. Um, you know, what can you infer from uh, things that are, that are, would be visible from, for example, your ISP and anybody that could potentially sniff your ISP's traffic. And it, it's kind of curious because it, it goes through this um, this woman and her partner's sort of journey with this uh, this IoT enabled um, device. And you know, there are a few things that um, that sort of come out at the end of this. One is that many of these devices actually aren't as well thought out. There's an, an kind of amusing section in the in the article where she talks about the experience of trying to get the coffee machine to brew coffee, and it, it seems it sounds like one of the most frustrating things in the world. <laughs> it really just doesn't work at all. Um, and I think they go through three different coffee machines, and none of them work particularly well. Anyway. Um, so that's the what well, the one takeaway from it is that a lot of these things you know don't deliver what they promise. The second thing is kind of expected as well is that there's a massive amount of um internet traffic generated by these devices now they're continually checking in they're continually looking you know uh, connecting to their back end systems um and even when there's you know nobody there there's no input to them um and the you know there's a period where one of the systems goes completely um, crazy and just starts spamming out to its backend system you know all the time continuously for I think like a, over a day or so. Hmm. Uh, it turns out the backend system apparently went down or had an update or something like that. But there's you know things things like that are very um, it seem to be very commonplace. Um, there are things that are sent in the clear, um, and the the sort of article starts to to 
sort of change at this point. And the, they talk a little bit about, um, you know, various things that you can um, get. So, for example, while while all of the, the Netflix communication is encrypted, um, Hulu sends a lot of information in the clear. So you can actually find out what people are watching and that sort of thing. Um, and But it really ends up going from a... Uh, an article around you know privacy and and you know what you can glean from from looking at just someone's internet traffic it turns out you can actually glean quite a bit you know you can find out when they're at home when they're not at home things like that as you'd yeah. expect but it turns into really the fact that most of it is actually really quite annoying <laughs> um so there are a few things that work very well. The internet-connected TV is is a, it's a very good experience. And the, the Amazon Echo for some of that just kind of random asking questions uh, seems to be quite well-received. But a lot of the other stuff, you know, does or doesn't work, sometimes randomly, um, and generally tends to be quite irritating. The other thing that she's quite impressed with is the, the robot uh, vacuum. So... <laughs> Take that, take that as you will. I mean, it, all these things are continuously spewing data back to the kind of big data platforms that we talk about day in, day out. But often the data that's coming in is used for the analysis of how these things are being used. Um, but there's a, there is a significant sort of privacy angle to this. Um, organizations do a lot to at least from my conversations, to try and ensure that as much of it is uh, anonymized as possible. But there's there's certain angles here of, um, you know, what what could you find out about a person or a household um, if you were able to, you know, compromise one of these sort of environments. So... Yeah, but it is getting better now, right? The GDPR is forcing them, and I know that, I'm not sure if it was Alexa, but one of those uh, home assistants, let's call them, uh, that used to send all the voice to the central location in the cloud to do the machine learning algorithms to do the detection of natural language, blah, 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 and then send the result back. They're actually now doing it on the device itself because they're not allowed to send everything over the wire like this. So yeah. this privacy things will get better, but the thing is that you have to be very careful on what kind of agreements you agree to. And I'm yep. assuming you're going to have very expensive things, which will be pretty good for privacy, and some very cheap or free things. And as the old saying goes, if uh, if what you get is for free, then you're not the customer, you're the product, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. That's the one that's always going to be there. Now, also wondering, uh, these guys, this is an American uh, couple, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so I also think it's going to be very dependent on your geological uh, or geographical uh, location geological not geographical location <laughs> yeah Depending if you're on, on sedimentary layer you're going to have some serious issues <laughs> in the bedrock everything works yeah, it's good, yeah. good conductivity there so that's going to be glaciation yeah. did they have anything to say about how these things interoperated because what I always uh, kind of hit is a wall of uninteroperability which isn't the word they do they do they have I mean they use the um uh, the Alexa as a lot of the the core of what they're doing okay. um, for for the voice control and you know things that were supposed to work with the Alexa um, you know like the, the coffee machine is is uh, is one of the things that is particularly uh, <laughs> problematic and I say they go through several of them none of them really working very well 
Um, yeah. Well, that is yeah. a whole strategy behind these uh, Alexa, the the Google Home thing, and I know Microsoft yeah. has one too, and the name escapes me. Shame on me. Uh, that those actually the device is one thing, but they really want to have that incorporated everywhere. And there were Alexa's in a couple of cars. Now the Microsoft thing is also in a couple of cars uh, these days. So again, to make that interoperability easier, but it's still. When, when a new company is starting out in this thing, it's going to be hard to have something that just works because there's no really a, a standard protocol. I mean, yeah, there's HTTP underneath, so REST interfaces, obviously, but you need more than that to have easy interoperability, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, 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 the sort of one of the points that they make during the article is that sometimes you don't actually need to know what data is being sent. The metadata itself is enough. So if you see, oh, yeah. there's a famous quote from an NSA director who says, uh, "If I have enough, if I have metadata, I don't need your data. I know enough already." <laughs> uh, I can look well, it up, but they, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can just Google. Doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, yeah, true. Because metadata is actually more honest than true data. Because true data, true data has has bias. Metadata is a lot more honest because it's usually automatically generated. Yeah. So yeah. Now, the one takeaway from this article for me is that uh, is the, the why, why would I do this? Because uh, I'm quoting here, I soon discovered that the only thing worse than getting a bad night's sleep is to subsequently get a report from my bed telling me I got a low score and missed my <laughs> sleep goal. <laughs> Thanks, smart bed. But I knew that already. I feel like shit. <laughs> so is this a quality of life thing? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, but it's nice. And I guess this, we're going to get more and more of these kind of articles. It's a bit light on the analytics, though. It just show you a little bit of uh, how many messages per second and stuff graphs, but there's no analysis in here. No, no. So, but, uh, yeah, nice. Right. Tell us, about, tell us more about data science. Uh, where did I put my little page? Yeah, my second article is a bit in the same vein as the first one. But mm-hmm. this is from the point of view of a person that wants to get involved with AI and machine learning on a technical level, really wants to want to do something. And this is an article on Medium written by Aparna Chastri. And it's a not too long, but it's a kind. It, she kind of describes her journey from, hmm, I think I want to do something with this whole machine learning thing and then actually being able to do something. Because she kind of describes on how hard it is to get into this world. Not because it's difficult and, okay, it's a lot of mathematics. It is not easy. But the hardest part is basically to to know where to go look for information and how to get a kind of a soft landing or soft start without being totally flabbergasted and discouraged by all of the acronyms and people promising and doing stuff all all over the place. So it's a nice read for people that uh, start out. And again, we're talking about people that actually want to do stuff and not just understand uh, the more abstract layer of it. Mm -hmm. And there's a nice graphic in there as well, which is a graphic she borrowed from another uh, site. I'm going to put the link in the show notes as well that has a lot of, it's kind of like a subway map with all of the steps you should take, should between air quotes, uh, to become an expert in machine learning. And there's actually quite a lot on there. And I had seen this one before. And I also, when I looked at it, said, oh my God, do I have to do all this? (laughs) Fortunately, you don't. You can choose in it. But um, yeah, it's overwhelming to start in this space. And the article just gives uh, a lot of, it doesn't really give you real do this, then that, and so on, but more 
uh, how she went about it and uh, got to a, a good result. And a couple of things that I will highlight in the article is uh, when she started looking uh, around on uh, on a lot of sources like uh, Quora, Medium, Springboard, eBooks, Udacity, Forbes, Data Science, KD Nuggets, uh, Data Science. There's got a whole bunch of things there. Mm-hmm. She actually says <laughs> she did all this absorbing all the information with spoonfuls of salt. Pinches of salt, not enough. <laughs> and that's a good thing, actually, because a lot of these articles you find out, uh, out there are actually written because artificial intelligence and machine learning is the next big hype. And if you want to get a lot of followers and readers, you just make some ludicrous, well, maybe not even ludicrous, but make some claim about the magic that a machine learning and artificial intelligence can do. And... Just as I felt when I started programming many, many years ago, I always had this feeling like I am stupid because I'm doing all of this stuff by hand. This must be easier, right? Because on all these books I read, that's a lot. That, 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 it seems like it's magic and I have to do it by hand. Well, no, that's just how it works. <laughs> it yeah. gets easier all the time. But there's still a lot of hard work in there. And sometimes it just doesn't work. That That's just yeah, part of the truth out there. So it's a good hint, uh, a good tip from her. Do read a lot, do absorb a lot, but make sure you don't just believe everything you read. Always keep in mind where you read it and what kind of glasses that particular person was wearing when he was writing it. Are you saying that not everything on the internet is 100% true, Jan? Um, this, is, this is shaking no, my no, no, worldview. No, that's not possible because I read on the internet that everything on the internet was true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Dodge that bullet. <laughs> uh, but further down in the article, uh, damn you for taking away my train of thought like that. Um, mm-hmm. She also talks about um, the fact where you do can do a lot of stuff by reading articles and uh, following MOOCs on Coursera, EDX, and all around the place. And that's good. That's one thing you can do. But what she also did is go to meetups and do projects. And at the end, that's kind of the, the end result, the end conclusion, let's say, of the article is that you can do all the MOOCs you want. And a lot of people tell you that MOOCs really don't matter at all. And that's not entirely true because you need the MOOCs to have a start. But it is true in a way that if you only did these online courses and stuff like that, you maybe have read a lot about it, but you have not achieved any skill in using it. And the only way you can do that is by talking to your peers and doing little uh, projects and things like KD Nuggets, uh, Kaggle, sorry, the Kaggle competitions. Those are real good to just, uh, yes, start getting your, your hands dirty and actually doing something so that when you want to go out there and get a job, get a career in this space, you can say more than uh, I follow these Coursera courses, but you can actually say, I did this thing and this is why I did it and you can explain it. And when I talk to people in this space, it's actually very easy to pick up if somebody has read a good article or actually has done something with it. And I think when I talk to my customers, my clients, they feel that too. Because there's a difference between talking to a person that actually grocks something. And if you don't know the word grok, you need to read more Heinlein. And somebody has just read an article about it. And that's a very important difference. So uh, that's that. And uh, yeah. That's about all I want to say about it. So it's not too long. It's a nice read. And again, if you're not in the executive suite and you'd still want to have a bit of a non-discouraging handle on how to start your journey in the B 
big data, data science, artificial intelligence. It's a nice read. So there's there is actually a, a, a quite a short follow-on article that I really quite like, um, just talking about the the next steps and the it it quotes right at the very end um, uh, someone from uh, someone who often has courses uh, or creates courses and so Andrew Ng. And uh, his his quote is: "These techniques are easy to learn and hard to master." And mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. that's true with you know, a lot of the, these kind of areas. It, you can pick up the basics relatively quickly, but actually bringing that to um, you know regularly being able to bring that to um, a, a sensible conclusion is you know, not quite as easy as it might initially look. Yeah. It's like learning a language. It's one thing to, to to read a dictionary and learn it by heart, but you still won't be able to talk the language. Yeah, or uh, yeah, to say that you've learned a language because you can say hello, goodbye, yes, no, please, and thank you is not quite the same as being completely fluent in it. Yeah, all you need to know for language is swear words and how to pick up uh, the other sex, right? <laughs> and how to order drink. Well, that's part of the second part. Booze, booze is very important. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad right. advice, Mr. Dave. Uh, that's great advice. Anyway, <laughs> so moving moving on? Uh, yep, I'm done. So let's go to your final article for today. All right. So moving from the art of learning to data science um, to an article. I, I find this kind of interesting because we are in this sort of position where people are still trying to work out what on earth they're going to do with all this data. So this article is... Um, burn it, burn uh, it fire. Well, maybe not burn it fire. <laughs> um, to protect or collect Germany's big data divide. And this is focused on, on Germany because of uh, some of the conversations that are happening right now in um, the German government. But the, these conversations are happening everywhere, at a governmental level, at an individual organization level, even within teams. And it's really, you've got two, two steps, you can either, or two sort of paths. You can either um, look to just hoover up as much data as possible um, and, you know, capture everything, store everything, or you can look at um, being far more cautious about how you store the data and you know use those in, in this particular case use those high privacy standards as an argument to why you would want to buy in this in this particular article's case buy German and the sort of the the different parties within the German government have very different views as to, how this you know how this should go the sort of the center right has more of an idea that you know everything should be hoovered up and and you know that that would lead to better solutions and services uh, as you might expect the other side and saying that you know having high privacy standards and is a is a better argument for for why you would want to buy german services german products this is the this is the continual sort of argument that we're seeing. It's coming more to the forefront with things like um, GDPR, um, but it you know, it's it's one of those things that we just can't seem to 
you know can't get away from at the moment and need to start facing properly um it's interesting because a lot of this is talking about the the particular situation in germany which is that there are even in the single country there are 16 different entities which are in charge of overseeing the data protection of private companies um and that's you know primarily due to the 16 different federal states um, some some of whom don't get along with each other and things like that. So the the sort of the situation in Germany is particularly complex. But the the sort of the real focus is European companies or German companies here really are being questioned. What do they want to collect? Why do they need to collect it? And what do they need to store that data for? What's the what's the value that they're delivering out of it? Does it really serve their benefit and not just not not the benefit of a third party? Mm. So it's yeah, I think this is that we're going to see more and more detailed. We've seen kind of general GDPR conversations and articles and things over the last few months. I think we're going to start to see more region and country specific conversations starting to spring up as this starts to get more and more real yeah for me it's basically the the privacy issue right i mean yeah it, it's all it's, it's it's an age-old story to be honest where okay if we had been able to dig more deeply we might have prevented this or that crime or horrific thing happening but if we dig deep in everybody then we kind of are a horrible thing that's happening and where's where's the borderline where can you actually say that's true or not and it's an important thing because if if you look at the us who is now banning i think it was huawei who isn't allowed to sell their smartphones or uh, routers and switches to any government agency anymore yeah and whether or not it's true or not i don't know i haven't looked into their hardware or software but it's the decision is based Oh, apparently on the fact that they were capturing more data than they should have. Yeah. So apart from just the personal privacy things, this is also, I think the article is more about the, the company and the, the German products being still recognized as trustworthy across the world. It's, yeah, that's a big part of, uh, of your uh, GD, not GDPR, but uh, GDP. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, it can fall away just because you have a... A, 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 people assume that uh, your 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 hardware is collecting too much information and things like that, but it's a very hard thing. Yeah, where do you, where do you draw the line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, if you're if you're capturing data for predictive failure, for example, I mean that's the the, the sort of the big use case. Mm-hmm. Um, for these sorts of things, you know, how much data do you need to be able to predict? Yeah. hardware failure well you can never have enough data right because the more data you have and not i'm not saying that more of the same type of data but more kinds of data yeah the better it is but at a certain point it becomes annoying and i mean i'm not going to go into the politics of, of gun control because that's not my point here but you had the shooting in the in us uh, recently and the FBI kind of said, yeah, we, we had it's uh, we had some information that led us that might have led us to believe that this person was going to do this or that but they weren't able to go deep enough, perhaps, or I don't know where that line lied there. But yeah, it can be very. I mean, it, it happens. It happens though with with the with the majority of terrible events that happen across the world. You know, it comes out later that there was some 
you know, chatter, there was something mm -hmm. that, you know, was perhaps indicating that something mm -hmm. may well be about to happen. But there's, unless you have a, you need, you need a certain degree of certainty to be able to act on that. Yeah. And that this, let's face it, that's what a lot of what big data is all about. It's about getting a certain level of certainty um, from the data that you're receiving so that you can perform some form of action, yeah. whether that's predictive failure or potential terrorist event. I don't know. Yeah, it's basically classification, right? In 2020 yeah. hindsight, is always easy, but how much data do you need or should you have allowed to have to be able to get a good prediction there? It's a, it's a tough one. And yeah, yeah, I don't know. Personally, I'd say only the, the, the bad people are the only ones that are afraid that their privacy gets invaded because they have something to hide. But the moment you start doing down that path, there's no end in sight anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very tricky area. And I think we will continue to see, um, you know, conversations about the ethics of... Mm -hmm. um, storing data to you know it's it's as we get more and more data and as we have more and more devices spewing data out therefore giving the ability to capture it it's it's only going to get more and more um front yeah. of mind and there's also actually a good part on the Hutton's whole story well good silver lining let's call it that where because this data thing is becoming so 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 alive that it's not just uh, the, the the shady officers that are talking about this. No, this is getting on the internet in the newspapers. Everybody's talking about this whole privacy and data issue. That yeah. it becomes more and more important for big companies to have some kind of ethics in place where they at least think about how they should be doing it and in the best case have some kind of uh, let's call it a manifesto or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it with their view on the whole thing. And I mean. The more people think about this, the more this will get sussed out and toward end up in a, in a reasonable conclusion. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And yeah, fingers crossed that uh, you know. Hopefully, we will see more uh, more sensible conversation happening around these topics, and it will lead to um, a better uh, better legislation, uh, better understanding for everybody around what big data is actually able to do for them but also you know if if they want it to be able to perform these functions what you need to feed it in the first place and could you make a, a link to the first articles you talked about like open source because open source is kind of saying i give up my rights of privacy when it comes to my source code i think you can you can to a certain extent uh, I think what we're looking at, though, is we're looking... We've almost gone kind of three-quarters of the way around. We haven't made that last sort of... That last 25% of the connection. Like, mm -hmm. If you start off with open source, and it was all about the the, the, the code, uh, the, the, thing that was, the thing that was generating or the thing that was doing the work, and then going on from there, you know, the next... So that's maybe 50% of it. Then the next maybe twenty five percent is more of um, what that generates, and then the, the final twenty five percent is what you do with what what's generated. Mm. So I think the the link to open source probably gives us maybe seventy five percent of the story, but I don't think people are thinking about open source in the same vein yet. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Open data in the same vein, yeah. Uh, well, well, the ultimate good thing, of course, is this is not something that's going to go away in the next few weeks. So we'll be having talks about this, well, more frequently in the future as well. Yeah, I think so. With that, that is about all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data news. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find out more information about the podcast, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is Jon. And we look forward to talking to you next week. See you then.